now on the Book Talk segment of the show. Great to welcome uh, William J. McGee. He's the author of a book called Attention All Passengers, The Airlines, Dangerous Descent, and How to Reclaim Our Skies. And he joined us today by a telephone up from up in uh, Connecticut. And uh, William, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I was happy to have a chance to uh, to read through the book. Uh, we all have flown and we all have had the, the, the sometimes horror stories. We all have some kind of story about airlines. <laughs> but while you really get into it, I know you work for the airlines for a while, or at least you covered it, right? You kind of did both, didn't you? I did, yeah. I spent about uh, almost seven years in airline flight operations. Uh, I worked in, uh, I'm an FAA licensed aircraft dispatcher, and I worked for several carriers, including Pan Am, so that sort of dates me a little bit. And uh, for the last 20 years, uh, I've been writing about the industry and uh, serving as a consumer advocate. So uh, altogether, I have about 27 years' experience in the industry, so it's been uh, a long journey. I worked briefly one summer for Eastern Airlines as a ticket agent. So I have a, a little experience working for the airlines, and Eastern's another airline that went bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, well, the list of airlines that have, uh, you know, gone under since uh, deregulation of the industry in 1978 just keeps getting longer and longer. And, of course, now we're down to a scenario where, you know, as far as the large legacy airlines, as they call them, they're re we're really down to four now, American, United, Delta, and U.S. Airways. So uh, I think we're rapidly approaching the uh, the too big to fail threshold. Yeah, I think that's kind of almost the theme of your book. The de deregulation uh, may have done some things good for the consumer, but uh, in other ways, uh, maybe worse. Uh, well, why why was airlines why were airlines deregulated? What, what what was the impetus for that originally in the late seventies? Well, for those that you know that aren't aware of what the industry was like, you know, prior to 34 years ago, um, the, the government had tremendous control over the entire industry to the point where not only did they decide what airlines would fly on what routes and how often, but they determined the fares. Even you know, government right. regulators determined how much the fare would be, you know, from uh, you know from Florida to California or what have you. Now, you know, the, the thought was that. Um, you know, would be a good thing for consumers. And, and certainly, you know, I try and be fair and balanced here. And uh, I think, you know, there have been some good things that have happened, you know, for consumers through deregulation. My concern is that, you know, the free market forces in the airline industry have just sort of gotten out of control. And uh, at one point, the working title of this book was not attention all passengers, but was a mad race to the bottom, because I think that reflects what's going on here. Uh, that this cost cutting that, you know, most of us see in terms of baggage fees and things like that, it extends beyond that to much more serious issues, including maintenance. Yeah, I remember as a kid, uh, family would go to Florida two, two or three times a year, wherever we went, and when my dad, you know, bought the tickets, uh, they had, I guess, uh, you know, you had family fares, you had half fares for the kid, but yeah, the, the fares were pretty much designated by the government, I don't know the government at the time, but they were designated specifically, I guess they were all pretty much the same at that point, right? That's right, and so, you know, in, in, in those days, you know, for, for many decades, the airlines competed on service, because there was no, you know, it, it was impossible to compete on fares, even if they wanted to. Yeah. So, you know, those were the days of, you know, all the advertising campaigns saying, you know, we have the friendliest flight attendants, or the best food, or the roomiest seats, you know, those are the things they competed on. Uh, obviously, those days are falling over now. I remember National Airlines, where the, 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 the stewardess would come on and, and say, I'm Nancy, fly me. Remember those ads? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> when they were still called stewardesses. Similar campaign. <laughs> yeah, when, when Southwest Airlines started up in 1971, they had a similar campaign with, you know, flight attendants wearing hot pants and things like that. That's right. You know? In some ways, we've lost that. <laughs> 
made flying a little more enjoyable. I mean, but uh, and he said the service as well. Uh, I wouldn't say the food was ever good on airlines, but at least you you would get uh, hot meals uh, on on pretty much all flights, and you know the deck of cards. I mean, they give you stuff, give stuff away on. I mean, that, that service thing was the big selling point. Now you're lucky if you get a bag of peanuts and a coke, right? Well, you probably got a passion of coke. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You know, uh, one of the things that I, I write about at length in Attentional Passengers is uh, what the industry calls load factors, which is just a term that means the percentage of occupied seats on airplanes. And um, we're in an area now that we've never really been in before. For a brief time during World War II, the, the airlines are troop carriers. But, you know, other than that, uh, throughout the whole history of the domestic industry, load factors usually were around 60%. So that basically meant about 6 out of 10 seats were, were occupied on average. Well, now on average, the U.S. airlines, um, the last couple of years, we've been seeing average load factors over 80%, uh, which, of course, means that many, many flights are at 100%. Mm. And I'm sure I'm not telling you or your listeners anything new. If you're following, you think you just have your imagination that kind of the fuller. And I, I think those high load factors as the U.S. squeeze more and more passengers into airplanes are actually the unseen force that is, is making a lot of things much tougher. It leads to more flight delays and cancellations. It leads to more passengers being involuntarily bumped. It leads to more problems with, you know, the fights for the overhead bins with, you know, with, with baggage because people don't want to pay the baggage fees. It leads to, you know, three people sitting abreast and not having as much, you know, comfort. And uh, and even I think indirectly to to air rage in some cases. Not that I would I would ever excuse you know anyone acting inappropriately, but. You know, these, these things have all sort of come to a critical mass. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that any of us who are old enough to remember flying before 1978 knows that, um, you know, it's just not a pleasant experience anymore. Most people just refer to it as the hassle factor. Yeah, you, you talk a lot, a lot about it in the book. I remember... Uh, again, going back as a kid when we took family vacations, uh, you almost had to dress up to fly. I mean, people dress better than they do now. Now it's like riding a bus, right? I mean, people just get on in any old thing. But there's more of a, I guess, a status to it. You, know, you go on an airplane, you, you behave yourself a different way, and I guess that's almost gone too, isn't it? <laughs> Well, you know, I have a whole chapter devoted to that issue of yeah. air rage. To sort of look, you know, again, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not going to excuse anyone's behavior if it's inappropriate or violent, but just to, you know, to say, well, what's, you know, what's behind all this? Why, you know, I even ask the question, why do we even have a term called air rage? I mean, we don't have bus rage or subway rage or train rage, you know, and yet air rage is in the lexicon. And, um, you know, again, I mean, I, I, I write in the book, you know, what you just said, that, you know, I, I point out that, First time I went to an airport, Kennedy Airport in New York, I was five years old. Right. I had on a tie and a wet shirt and Chinese shoes, and I wasn't even flying. I was yeah. to pick up, you know, my family would pick it up, my brother coming home on leave from the Army. So, uh, you know, obviously an awful lot has changed. I, I can't remember the last time someone wore a suit and tie to pick someone up at an airport. Uh, you know, look, as I said, there's some good and there's some bad. I mean, you know, what the regulation was eating was to say, okay, there's no more jet set. This isn't just for the rich. You know, we're going to let everyone fly. And in some ways, you know, that certainly happened. But along the way, we've lost some things, too. And I, I think, you know, this book is, is an attempt to say, let's have a national dialogue. What do we want? You know, airlines are not, uh, you know, a luxury. They're not something that, you know, it's just a nice thing to have. They're something that they're absolutely intrinsic the health of our country. I mean, you know, everyone would agree on that. They're, they're intrinsic to our economy, to, to, to making people and things move. They're intrinsic to our security, our defense. I mean, you know, it would be 
equivalent to, you know, to shutting down the, the interstate highway system to say, let's shut down the airline. Mm. So we need them, but yet, you know, we, we haven't had any real national dialogue about what works and doesn't work in over 34 years now. So, uh, you know, this book, in a small way, if attention all passengers can help with that, um, you know, there's just, there's just so much discontent. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Right. Uh, every survey you see, you know, makes airlines at the bottom of the pile, and, and people are very, very angry. But, you know, this book is an attempt to say, well, look, you know, you might be angry about $25 baggage fees, but let's look at even more serious issues, you know, safety issues, and, you know, where else are, are costs being driven down. Yeah, I want to get into that uh, in a minute. We're talking with uh, William J. McGee, author of Attention, All Passengers, and uh, you talk in the book about uh, uh, the outsourcing, basically, of, of airlines, particularly regional airlines, where you may think you're on a United flight or whatever major airline you, you bought the ticket from, but basically they're run by a small regional. I just took a flight out to California last December. It was a United flight, but you look on the card in the back of the seat, and it was some airline I never heard of running the, that particular flight from Houston to California. So that, that, that's pretty prevalent now, isn't it? Oh, it is. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, the book details how much the industry has changed in the last 10 years, since about September 11th. And, uh, you know, for me, I, like I said, I've been around the industry my whole life and been, you know, working in it and writing about it for 27 years. But I have to say, you know, in researching this and talking to people on the front lines, I learned an awful lot that I didn't know. So I have to assume most readers, you know, that are, that are not in the industry are also learning some new things. And one of the most striking things is probably the fact that, you know, 53% of all airline departures in the United States now are operated by regional airlines. And that is, you know, quite a statement that you sort of have to let this, you know, absorb that. Every, you know, for every hundred departures this hour, 53 of them are going to be regionals. And, um, you know, in my view, the airlines, the mainline airlines, as the industry calls them, you know, American, United, U.S. Airways, Delta, in many ways they've sort of abdicated the responsibility of flying on certain routes. And not just, you know, traditionally regionals are used to go to rural cities and, and cities that, you know, didn't have a lot of traffic. But now they're used on the busiest routes in the country, from New York to Washington, for example. And, you know, the, the, the problem is, in, in my view, to an extent, they're abdicating their responsibilities. But as you say, you know, you buy the ticket on the mainline carrier, you book through their site, your credit card is built by, by that airline, and, you know, you get to an airport where all the signage and all the marketing and everything else is that airline. And as you say, unless you read the fine print on the emergency evacuation card, you may not even be aware. Yeah. And there are, you know, there have been some... Some, some, some good things come from the Department of Transportation to try to increase that awareness factor. But the fact is, I hear some readers every day who are still confused over this. And, and the more important thing is not just who's operating the flight, but what are the standards. Right. There's an entire chapter in, the, in attention all passengers devoted to regional carriers. And uh, unfortunately, in, in my view and the views of many people in the industry, even though there's supposed to be one standard, there's really, there's really two standards with the mainline carriers and with regional carriers when it comes to safety. I was going to say, the, the regional the carriers, you, you talk about the safety issue, and not necessarily you're getting the the best mechanics or even the best pilots. I was a little surprised uh, when you said some of these regional airlines pay their pilots less than 10 bucks an hour. I, I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, the Colgan Air crash that took place in Buffalo uh, three years ago, I think that was a, a bit of a wake-up call. Um, and it received a lot of attention. And I think when people realized that the first officer on that flight, she was making less than $20,000 a year, you know, flying for an airline that had Continental written on the side, even though she was flying for, for Golden Air. Um, that was a real wake-up call for a lot of people. 
just, you know, um, we can name an awful lot of professions where, you know, people are being paid better than that. Uh, in fact, she was, she was um, forced to work as a waitress at one point to supplement her income. Um, but, you know, beyond the, the, the pay issues, there's training issues, there's, you know, there's, there's hiring qualifications. Um, you know, the, the industry, and, and by law, you know, the, 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 it's supposed to be that there is one standard. But what we have, you know, found in recent years is that, you know, they're just they're, they're two, two classes of carriers. Um, I spoke to the, the relative of, of a woman who was killed in that Buffalo crash, and she said to me, you know, when we started researching it, we looked at it that the regionals were a farm team. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, what's the uh, status now? I mean, uh, again, I don't need to keep going back when we were kids, but... You know, it was a different uh, airline world back then. Uh, most of the pilots, I would assume, uh, when we were flying as kids or even young adults or younger adults, that uh, those guys were trained uh, in the military uh, and came out of, you know, whatever, Korea War, Vietnam, whatever, as pilots. Where are the pilots coming from now, and does anybody really want to be a pilot when there's not that much money to be made anymore? Well, it's a real problem. There's no question, you know. Uh, you're right. I mean, in the old days, I remember seeing a statistic that I think, you know, in the for, you know, in the post-World War II period, something like 80 or 85 percent of commercial pilots have been trained in the military. Um, you know, that's not the case now. There are a lot of, you know, uh, pilots that are getting experience flying for very small airlines or for computer carriers or for, you know, air taxis and things like that, and they work their way up that way. But, you know, the real concern is, is you know, as, as was it pointed out to me back when I worked in the industry, you know, you sort of learn from osmosis sometimes, older, you know, veteran employees gets the younger veterans, mm-hmm. and, you know, the younger employees, excuse me, and, um, you know, we're losing that to an extent, and I think where we see it most dramatically is with maintenance, you know, there's been this dramatic upsurge in the last 10 years with outsourcing maintenance, right. in many cases outside the United States, developing countries to El Salvador, to, to Mexico, to China, to Singapore, um, we're, we're having work done on U.S. airlines, on their aircraft, uh, by unlicensed you know, I'm using the word mechanics, but I'm, I'm, I'm using it in quotation marks because technically they're not even mechanics in many cases. Maintenance technicians is what the industry is starting to call them. Mm. Um, you know, this is just a complete departure with how the industry has always worked. Um, in, 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 in my day when I worked at Pan Am, if a job was being done on an aircraft and there were 10 mechanics working on it, all 10 of them, you know, working on that, that project, whatever it was, let's say it was changing an engine, all 10 were licensed by the SAA, and one of them signed off on it. Now what we have in many cases is, you know, we have 10 unlicensed people doing the same job, but that one mechanic with, with a license still signs off on it. And according to the FAA, they're saying that's the same model. Mm. Well, you know, I would argue that you need no experience in the aviation industry or, no, you know, you don't need to know anything about airlines or airplanes to say, you know, there's something wrong with that. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, a dentist or a barber, or anyone, any kind of professional, to say that it doesn't matter whether you're licensed or unlicensed to do a job, uh, you know, I, I just can't accept that. Yeah, it's a sobering thought, uh, <laughs> and especially now when, you know, these planes, uh, where I live right here near Sarasota, you know, there's these planes that go up and down New York or the Atlanta route, and they, who knows how often they make those runs within a half hour of each other. You know, flipping back, they don't do a lot of maintenance in between those flights either on the same day. So who knows what's uh, happening, right? Yeah, the good news is is that, you know, airplanes are much better built than they ever were. And, you know, we've managed to 
work a lot of, you know, bugs out of the system over the years, you know, in some cases to tragic circumstances. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons the system stays as it is. And statistically, you know, I want to be very clear, the you know, our industry is, is, is a very safe industry. But this book is a warning, you know, and I know I'm sort of out there and I'm, I'm, I'm making a case that, you know, uh, that, that things are going to get worse, and I certainly don't wish it, but the, the fact is, this is based on, not on my opinion, but, you know, on the opinions of, of dozens and dozens of people that I've spoken to in the front lines, FAA inspectors, mechanics, pilots, you know, they're very worried. You know, um, we, had an, we have an endorsement on the back cover of the book, Attention All Passengers, and it's from, you know, someone who's very well-known, Sully. Captain Chesley Sullenberger right. from, you know, the U.S. Airways uh, aircraft that landed in the Hudson River, and he did such a spectacular job there. And, you know, a few years ago when he retired from the U.S. Airways, you know, he made a statement that I think we all need to listen to. He said, it, by any way you want to measure it, I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, but his statement was basically, by any way you measure it, I leave an industry that is in worse shape than when I entered it. Mm. Now, that's a very sobering thing, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think we all have to sort of stand up and, and say, well, what, what's going on here? Um, I, you know, I'm not being critical of the individuals that work in the industry. I think some people are perceiving that, that I'm criticizing, you know, pilots or mechanics that don't have as much experience. I'm criticizing a system that is, you know, that is sort of being turned inside out. Um, you know, I want to see more Americans put to work, not fewer Americans. And, you know, we've basically taken this industry and we've decimated it. And, you know, if you're, if you're a, 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 a service member now serving in, a, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you come back to the United States and you're a certified aircraft mechanic, well, you know, there was a time when there was nothing better than to, you know, make the, the jump from the military to, you know, working in the oil industry. Now you simply can't do that. Yeah. If you did, you're not going to be making a living wage in many cases. So, you know, we have to sort of ask ourselves, what are we doing? And, you know, I, I think, quite frankly, the issues I'm bringing up about the airlines, I'm, I'm an airline guy, and that's all I lie about, but I think these issues that I'm raising have to do with a much bigger picture issues of what's going on. I mean, why would we want to take such a skilled shield like aircraft maintenance, in which Americans have traditionally done the best in the world, and give it away wholesale and put people out of work and ship these jobs to developing nations where, where uncertified people are doing the work? To me, it just makes no sense. Yeah, and uh, I didn't want to ask you before we run out of t too much more time. I love talking about this, and, and I, by the way, your book is very fair too. I didn't, I didn't get the impression you were uh, ripping the airlines at all. I think you lay out your case uh, very fairly to the people that are going to read it. So I just wanted to say that. But how about the now? One thing I think it might be better. Maybe you can disagree with me or, or fill me in from the, the regulation days or, or before deregulation. It seemed back then there was a lot of flights that, remember when you figured you're flying into New York or big cities, you had to stack up for maybe a couple hours when you came in. I think they did away with that where they have to have an open slot for you before a flight takes off. So I think it eliminated a lot of the, the delays as far as that goes. Am I right about that, or, or is that uh, erroneous? Well, to an extent, yes, you are. There have been, you know, it's a, it's a tough issue. It's an issue that, you know, that still plagues us in some ways. Um, some airports, it's much more acute than others, you know. And as someone who's a licensed dispatcher and used to work in flight operations, you know, it was something I was intimately involved in for, for several years. Um, and I worked at some tough airports. I, I worked for the Pan Am Shuttle, which I'm very oh, yeah. New York LaGuardia, Washington National, and Boston Logan. Those are three of the most congested airports on the planet. And we have hourly service, in some cases more than hourly. So, you know, I, I certainly know what I'm 
know, what, what, you know, what you're talking about with this. I mean, I, you know, I'll share one thing with you. I had a reputation for bringing bad thunder with me. And my nickname at the Pan Am Shuttle was B.C. McGee, meaning Black Cloud McGee. It was clear days when I was off and when I came in, the fog and the rain and the thunderstorm started. Uh, so I know what you're talking about, but at the same time, you know, we have a system that right now in many, in many markets, in many cities, many airports, it is strained to the capacity on a perfect day. You know, the system really? is designed for an absolutely perfect day where, you know, there is no bad weather, no air traffic control problems, no maintenance problems, no crew problems, no, you know, security threats or anything else, and everything works beautifully. Well, obviously, you know, there aren't too many perfect days. And, yeah, we saw it last week on the East Coast. You know, there were thunderstorms that rolled in. And, you know, I mean, I, I, as soon as I heard about it last week, I said, I looked at the calendar, and I said, sure, it's like Jim, you know, that's what happens. And then the next thing you know, we're all reading reports and hearing things on the news and radio about, you know, about um, massive delays and cancellations. And, of course, these things don't just affect a few airports. They affect the whole country, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a friend who was traveling last week to Europe and, you know, missed his connection and lost the whole day as a business trip. But, I mean, you know, it's not isolated incidents. And, and so, you know, we really need to start looking at this and saying, well, look, if we're concerned about overcapacity, if we're concerned about, you know, uh, congestion problems. And by extension, there's another chapter in the book that deals with the environment. If we're concerned about the industry's, you know, carbon footprint, then, you know, let's ask ourselves, is it better to send up, you know, five regional aircraft carrying 50 people each or one larger aircraft carrying 250 people? Now, the airlines will say, well, customers want hourly service. But, you know, when things go bad, there is no hourly service anyway. All the flights are going to be canceled. Yeah. I think we really need to step back and take some big picture issues here. The funny industry, because, you know, it's so intrinsic to, to everything that's important in this country. But at the same time, it's subject to, you know, free market forces in the most violent way. And, you know, what we have is that we really don't have any discussion about, well, you know, what's the best way to use these airports? Is it, you know, a congested airport like Buddy Airport? Does it make sense to have so many small regional airplanes in and out? They take up just as much space, you know, as, as larger aircraft. In some cases, they require even more in space separation. And, um, you know, we don't have that discussion going on. I think, you know, I think it's time we had it. Mm. Well, it's a fascinating book called Attention All Passengers. We've been talking with uh, William J. McGee tonight on the uh, show. And, uh, uh, William, you have a, a website people get a hold of you, get a hold of the book? Absolutely. I mean, the book uh, just was released uh, on Tuesday, June 26th, so it's available everywhere you buy books online and in stores. And uh, I have a website, uh, www.skywriting, spelled S-K-Y-R-I-T-I-N-G.com. And uh, you can learn more there about it as well. Great. Well, appreciate you taking a few minutes. Uh, it is a fascinating uh, industry. Uh, I mean, it can be a lot of fun and can be uh, can be kind of hair raising at times. But, uh, but I think you, you shed some light on what's going on, and uh, it's not too late to to make the improvements. But I think we're coming down to a point where something has to be done soon, right? <laughs> Well, you just summed it up very well, actually. Uh, that, that's exactly what I wrote about attention all passengers. Because, you know, I thought, you know, we really need to have a national dialogue about this before things get much worse. Mm. We need to talk about these things. Uh, because, you know, pretty soon it'll, it'll be too late and we won't be able to say, well, all, uh, all maintenance work has been outsourced outside the United States. It's too late to do anything about it. You know, we need to address these issues now. Attention all passengers, the name of the book. We've been talking with uh, William J. McGee tonight. William, thanks for joining us, and hopefully we can do it again down the road. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. You can call me anytime.
I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America, isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids, right here at home in the United States of America.